go to the book of Acts. Just go to chapter 2 to start off. And then particularly, uh, follow along on the insert there that I gave you. To consider this essential truth of the gospel, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. My plan for this message was to walk through 1 Corinthians 15. That's why we had it read. It is an important chapter. Uh, Paul deals with a lot of problems with the Corinthians. They had a lot of problems. And that's an understatement. One of the problems that they had is they had some in their church that didn't believe that there would be a resurrection of the dead. And so Paul deals with that there. And as we saw, to deny, to say that people are not going to be raised from the dead, that believers won't be raised, if you're going to go that far, that means Jesus is also dead. Then my plan was to walk through this chapter, look at the things that he said, and then to note some key essential reasons why Jesus' resurrection is important. Why Jesus' resurrection is important. And I knew there was four, five, or six things that I've seen in different books that I've read. But the more I studied, guess what I found? Well, what's in your hand right now? There's a lot. And so I'm faced with a, a dilemma. We have a lot of good food out there. I have three sermons to preach in one space. What do I do? Well... We'll cover 1 Corinthians 15, that survey. I thought about just printing it out in my notes and, and handing that available, but I thought, I still feel like I'm shortchanging you. So I'm going to be, I'm going to, I will walk through that this coming Wednesday night uh, during prayer meeting on 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's an 1859 painting by a man by the name of Frederick Church. Now, how'd you like that for a last name? Church. And this 1859 painting is titled The Heart of the Andes. You and I, we think of paintings and we think of something along that size, or maybe a little smaller. This one is five feet wide, high, 10 feet wide, okay? Five feet high. This is, this is a big painting, a big painting. And it was, when it was put on display in, in New York City, it created a sensation. Well, this is hard for us to imagine, isn't it? Because we think of paintings and we think, oh, boring, because we're so used to videos and things like that. Especially the responses that occurred when people went to look at this painting. The reports are that women fainted as they viewed this painting and that men and women were overcome by it. A famous writer during that time by the name of Sam Clemens, you know him as Mark Twain, said this about this painting. I have just returned from a visit to the most wonderfully beautiful painting which this city has ever seen, Church's Heart of the Andes. I have seen it several times, but it is always a new picture, totally new. You seem to see nothing the second time which you saw the first. 
We took the opera glass and examined its beauties minutely. For the naked eye cannot discern the little wayside flowers and soft shadows and patches of sunshine and half-hidden bunches of grass and jets of water which form some of its most enchanting features. There is no slurring of perspective effect about it. The most distant, the minutest object in it has a marked and distinct personality so that you may count the very leaves on the tree. When you see the tame, ordinary-looking picture, your first impulse is to turn your back on it and say, Humbug! But your third visit will find your brain gasping and straining with futile efforts to take all the wonder in and appreciate it in its fullness and understand how such a miracle could have been conceived and executed by human brain and human hands. You will never get tired of looking at the picture. But your reflections, your efforts to grasp an intelligible something, you hardly know what, you will grow so painful that you will have to go away from the thing in order to obtain relief. You may find relief, but you cannot banish the picture. It remains with you still. It is in my mind now. And the smallest feature could not be removed without my detecting it. Now, when you get home today, you're all probably going to Google Frederick Church painting of the Andes. You can order a, a reproduction of it, small, or you could order an actual size replica. That actual size replica will cost you over $7,000. It's cheaper just to go to New York City and see it yourself or look it up on the internet. We hear that and we think, yeah, right, whatever. I don't believe it. People have the same attitude towards Jesus' resurrection, don't they? Yeah, whatever. I don't believe it. Or, as Mark Twain said, humbug. Even Christians can have a humbug attitude toward Jesus' resurrection from the dead because we say we need something more real, more practical, more to our life and the point of what I'm dealing with now. Yet the more that you look into Jesus' resurrection, the greater wonder, appreciation, and awe you will have. That is my prayer this morning. That as we walk through these things, it might not be just from this message, but by having this outline of these different truths that are so because Jesus rose from the dead, and as you reflect on this, maybe not the first time, Maybe not the second time, but by the third, the fourth, as Mark Twain talked about, you'll begin to see how much detail there is. Its significance. Its grandeur. And then you'll just have to stop and say, my brain can't wrap itself around this right now. Why is Jesus' resurrection so important? There are four main sections that I put on your sheet here. The person of Christ the work of Christ, the gospel of Christ, and then the saints of Christ. 
Let's consider, number one, the person of Christ. Christ's resurrection, number one, demonstrates, your blank here, his, is his omnipotence. His omnipotence. That means he is all-powerful. All-powerful. His omnipotence. Jesus said in John 2.19, he said, destroy this temple and what will he do? I will raise it up. He doesn't say merely it will be raised up, this body. He says, you destroy this temple, referring to his body, and he said, I will raise it up. In John 10.18, he says, I have power to lay it down and I have power to raise it again. Human beings can do a lot. We can repair seemingly forever broken things. A man like Frederick Church can do a painting that's amazing in size and scope. Can you imagine if I tried to do that? You know what my drawings look like. No Mark Twain is ever going to talk about the detail of Dan Greenfield's painting. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. No human being can reverse death. But Jesus, the God-man, did because he is fully God. He is omnipotent. Number two, his resurrection proves that Jesus is God. It proves that Jesus is God. Romans 1.4 He is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. Why is He declared to be the Son of God? It says by the resurrection of the dead. It proves Him to be God. Only God can raise the dead. Did Jesus raise the dead? Sure did. Several times in His earthly ministry. Lazarus, most particularly Jesus raised himself from the dead. Number three, we now are coming to the book of Acts. Let's look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 30 and 31. Acts chapter 2, verse 30 and 31. Peter's preaching and he says, Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that, that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Look at verse 31. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Then go over to chapter 13 and verse 37. So Peter spoke about that some years later. Paul would do the same. Next, chapter 13, verse 37. In verse 36, Paul said, David died. He was buried. David saw corruption. And then verse 37, but he whom God raised up saw no corruption. The point here, number three, is Jesus' resurrection demonstrates his sinlessness. You might not have been expecting that word. But Jesus' resurrection demonstrates his sinlessness. The wages of sin is what? It is death. The wages of sin is death. Someone might say, well, Jesus was buried for a period of three days. Well, that's not enough time for decomposition to really start. Uh, Jesus' body was there and he just kind of resuscitated. There are people flying under the banner of Christianity today. 
that say that very thing. Jesus merely resuscitated or he kind of swooned and didn't really literally rise from the dead. There's a article that you can find. It's called Life After Death, The Science of Human Decomposition. And I was going to read this paragraph describing decomposition, but you know what? It's kind of gross. And I don't want anybody fainting like to Frederick's church's painting. But I'll just read the first line. He said, decomposition begins several minutes after death with a process called autolysis or self-digestion. Just thinking about that, that's gross, isn't it? Why does decomposition of the human body happen? Because of sin. David's body corrupted. It decomposed. Why? Because David was born a sinner. Jesus' body never, never experienced corruption. For the three days that his body was dead in the tomb, it never decomposed. Why? Because he was without sin. His resurrection, and get this, his resurrection in the same body in which he was buried. Scripture emphasizes that. The same body in which he was buried, it demonstrates his sinlessness. Number four, his resurrection demonstrates that he is life. He is life. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to Lazarus' family, I am the resurrection and the life. He is life. Number five, his resurrection shows that he will be the future judge. He will be the future judge. We're here in Acts 13. Let's back up to chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. In these two passages, chapter 10 and chapter 17, we again have Peter preaching first. In chapter 10, and then Paul in chapter 17. Peter says, Acts 10, 40, speaking of Jesus, that the Jews killed. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Then flip forward to Acts chapter 17, verse 31. There Paul is, here Paul is speaking to Athenian philosophers, smart men, and he says to them in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, He has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this, that he's going to judge by raising him from the dead. No dead human being can judge other human beings. Only a living one can. Someone might say to you, how do you know there's going to be a future judgment? Here's your answer. 
how you can say, this is how I know there will be a future judgment. There will be a future judgment because Jesus rose from the dead. That might not satisfy them. But who is the judge of the living and the dead, according to Scripture? Jesus is. Friends, Jesus will be your judge. How many times do we hear people say, you're not my judge? And then they will say, they even have it tattooed on them. God is my judge. Only God can judge me. And they fail to weigh the truth of that statement. And it is not a God of their understanding. It is not a God of their making. It is the God who made them, the God who keeps them alive, Jesus of Nazareth. Someone might say, yeah, I believe Jesus came. I believe Jesus rose again. There might be some folks here who believe that. You consider yourself a Christian. And so our response needs to be, well, okay, what will you say to Christ at the judgment then? What is your expectation of eternal life? Is it because of what you have done? Is it because of some act you have executed? Or is it a wholehearted faith, love, reliance on Christ alone? Number six. Christ's resurrection shows him to be the king of the coming kingdom. The king of the coming kingdom. Back to chapter 2 of Acts. Chapter 2 of Acts. In verse 29. Um, maybe for sake of time, let me draw your attention to the key verse. And that is verse 30. Acts chapter 2 and verse 30. Peter says, Therefore, being a prophet, speaking of David, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. And 2 Timothy 2.8 says, Jesus, the seed of David, was raised from the dead. God promised way back in the Old Testament to David, that from David would come a descendant of his that would sit forever on the throne. Franklin Delano Roosevelt sat in the seat of the presidency for, was it four elections he won? Four terms, barely got through his fourth before he died. No one has ever served more than two except for FDR. But what happened to FDR? He died. Dictators have ruled for decades, but what happens to them? They die. You read Genesis chapter 5, and there is a refrain that runs through that. So-and-so lived, and he died. So-and-so lived hundreds of years, and he died. That is the end of every human being, except for the God-man, Jesus Christ who rose from the dead, and he will reign forever. And his resurrection enables and proves that. Number seven. You see, I already helped you with this one. I forgot to delete that from your, your sheet there. Number seven, he is the truth and does not lie. 
In Matthew 16, 21, Jesus said, destroy this body, I will raise it up. I will die and I will rise from the dead. But my point here too is that he made promises to believers and I give you a, a dozen or so here. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. Can't do that if you're still dead. In Matthew 18, 20, he said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, do you remember the promise? I'm there in their midst. Can't do that if you're dead. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus said, I am with you always. In John 6, 44, many of us know this one. No one can come to the Father. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But do you remember the last part of the verse? And I will raise him up the last day. That's a promise Jesus made to believers. He will raise them from the dead. In Revelation 1, 17 and 18, Jesus says, because he's alive forevermore, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I've defeated death. And then the last promise I list here, Revelation 22 and verse 20, Jesus said, I will come again. I buried my grandpa, 98 years old, last spring. His body is still in Lansing, Michigan, in a cemetery there. He didn't say to me, I'll see you next week, Dan. He's with the Lord now because he trusted Christ. But only Jesus said and can keep this promise, I am coming again. And he will do that because he lives. Let's consider second, the work of Christ. Because Jesus rose from the dead, Acts chapter 2, verse 24, you're right there. Look at verse 24. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. That's your blank there. He loosed the pains of death. Acts chapter 3, verse 15, describes him as the author of life. In Revelation 1.18, he has the keys of Hades and death. Key implies authority. I can lock my doors through various means. And unless you have the key, unless you have the key, you can't get in. And there's going to be some smart Alex that could say, well, I've got a hammer. I can get in that way. Who can get out of the prison of death? Who can get out of the prison of hell? No one can. But Jesus who has the key to it. He releases believers from that. He has done away with the pain of death. Number two, because Jesus rose from the dead, he causes dead sinners to become born again. And this is not talking about physical death. This is talking about spiritual death. Everyone born is born an alien, transgressor, far from God, an enemy of God. And Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Sinners can be born again, and they are born again because of Jesus' resurrection. Number three, 
Acts chapter 3, verse 26. So let's flip over there. Acts chapter 3 and verse 26. Peter says, To you first, speaking to these Jews, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning everyone away of you from your iniquities. He turns sinners from sin, number three. That is repentance. That is repentance. Because Jesus rose from the dead, he turns sinners from their sin. And he says here that that is a blessing. People look to the government for help. I need a handout. I need some money. They look for that quick fix. Nobody's helping me with this problem that I have. People don't love me. People don't care for me. And they might look to a word that Jesus says here. Turn from your sin. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you. And you'll be blessed. And they say, that's not a blessing. That doesn't really fit my need. That's not what, don't you know I have physical, material needs? My family's in trouble. I need help. Help me with that. What is the root of every problem in life? What's the reason that there's so much sorrow and difficulty? It's because of sin. And the, one of the greatest blessings that the Lord Jesus provides is repentance from sin and turning to Christ. And it happens because Jesus rose from the dead. We're painting this picture. We're helping to, we're, we're trying to see this picture that the Lord provides us in Scripture about the resurrection of Christ. This is an essential part of that. Number four, only a risen Christ can justify guilty sinners. Only a risen Christ can justify guilty sinners. Romans 4, he was delivered because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. The only way that guilty sinners can be declared right in God's sight is by a resurrected Christ. Dead people can't save others. It's impossible. Dying people can't save others. It's impossible. Only a living Savior can. Number five, because Christ rose from the dead, we have an always living high priest an always living high priest who makes intercession. Hebrews 7 says he continues to live forever. We have an unchangeable priesthood. He always lives to make intercession for them. In Romans 8, it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who's at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. One of the great blessings that we have is a body of Christ, a body of believers, a church. That's what a church is. A church isn't a building. Things that are called churches today, those are just church buildings. Those are meeting places for Christ's church. We're thankful for them. But a true church, one of the great blessings is Christians praying for each other. And our sorrows and with our joys. Have you ever told someone in need, a brother or sister, I will pray about that. I will pray for you on that. And then you've forgotten? We all have, haven't we? Why do we? Because we're imperfect. And we forget. 
Write it down. Write it on our hand. We set a timer on our phone to remind us. Jesus never forgets. And Jesus always prays. And he does that because he's alive. Number six. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we have an advocate for sinning believers. An advocate for sinning believers. First John chapter 2, verse 1. John there says, I write these things so that you will not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate. He's alive now. One who goes between us and God. Christian, the moment you trusted Christ, you never sinned again. True or false? Big false. Capital letters, false. We do sin, don't we? For the genuine believer, does that sin separate them from God? No, it does not. Because Jesus paid it all at Calvary, and he demonstrated the reality of that by rising from the dead and... Because he's alive, he stands between you and God. He goes to the Lord for you because he is the perfect high priest. Number seven, he's the head of the church. He is the head of the church. Colossians 1.18. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. A true church is a living body. We're the body of Christ. We're a living body because we have a living head. A living head. Number eight. Because we have a living Savior, He indwells believers. He indwells believers. Galatians 2.20, a verse we memorized earlier this year. I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live, but, you remember? Christ lives in me. Not this idea. I got this great concept about Jesus, and it just really kind of motivates me. No. The genuine believer has Christ living in them. I don't live. It's Christ living in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me and gave himself for me. Number nine, one last thing about Christ. Because he rose from the dead, he walks. Number nine, he walks among the churches. Revelation chapter two, verse one. He walks among the churches. This is somewhat tied to a promise I relayed earlier. Where two or three are gathered, what's the promise? I'm there in their midst. So think about this, Christian. Think about this oral Bible church. Who is here right now with us? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is with us right now. We can't wait till we can see him with our actual eyes and feel him and touch him and bow before him. But does that change the fact that he is here? No, he is here. And because Christ is here, that should compel you to faithfulness. It should comfort you in sorrow and difficulty and persecution. It should convict us of sin. All these things. That the one who walked among the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 
he does now here with Orwell Bible Church. We serve a risen Savior. Christ's resurrection has an impact, number three, on the gospel of Christ. We read this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul said this was of first importance, and the idea of that is it is a priority. It is a priority. Occasionally, when I'm describing or explaining something, I will sometimes say, now, this is my understanding of what Scripture says about this. And then I will say, but I'm not willing to die for it, of that interpretation. Because I recognize there are genuine believers who have disagreement, disagreeing interpretations about this subject. This is the truth every Christian should be ready to die for. Jesus died and he rose again. Because if Jesus is not dead, the preaching of the gospel is the worst waste of error. You who say you believe in Christ because he rose from the dead, boy, are you a fool. You wasted your life. You have no hope. You're wasting your time here. Let's close it up. We're just decomposing. That's all we are doing right now. If Christ isn't raised from the dead and there's no Christ, then evolution's true. We're no different from snakes. We're no different from other animals. But Christ has raised from the dead, hasn't he? He has. The gospel is based on two essential facts. A Savior died and he lives. So you're blowing here. It is essential to the gospel message and saving faith. It is essential to the gospel message and saving faith. Faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is not, well, I believe that. You can believe something different. We have di There's different paths to God. Whatever we think is right. Whatever you think. I mean, that's you. Okay, that's just, that's just you. So many people say, but what did Jesus say? I am one way, the truth. One way, one truth, one life. I'm a possible option. What did he say? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. No one. Faith looks to Christ and depends on Christ. Faith looks to and depends on a living Christ. To, those, to save those who are held by the shackles of sin and the prison house of death and its warden is Satan. This is based on Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15. If Christ is still dead, guess what still shackles you? Sin still enslaves you. If Christ is still dead, the door is locked. To the prison house of death. If Christ is still dead, the devil still subjects everyone to the fear of death. That is what Hebrews 2.15 says. But Jesus is risen. And this is essential to the gospel message and to saving faith. If anyone says, I'm a Christian, they wear their Christian button, they got their little fish decal on the back bumper of their car, they say, I'm a Christian. But they say, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. 
they are not a Christian. Well, you can't judge people like that. That's where you have to say, it's not me, it's not my opinion. It's what did God say? Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Christ has risen from the dead, you will be saved. And what's the opposite of that then? If you don't believe it, if you don't confess it, that Jesus has risen from the dead, you are not saved. And that belief is not a head knowledge. Yeah, I kind of believe that. Like I, gotta, I believe I, my taxes are due tomorrow, which they are, by the way. But it is a whole soul reliance. It is an actual, complete belief and acceptance. He is not dead. He is risen. Christ's resurrection has an impact last for saints in Christ. For saints in Christ. Because Jesus rose from the dead and enables you, number one, to bear fruit for God. To bear fruit for God. This is Romans 7, 4. We actually had this in the, I think it was the second hymn that we sang today. But there it says, because uh, we have been brought to Christ, to him who is raised from the dead, we can bear fruit to God. Fruit that's acceptable. A life, that's what's talking about this fruit. The way you live, how you think, the affections and desires that you have, your impact and conversations with other people, it is acceptable to God. It's a fruit to Him. Because Christ rose from the dead, number two, it enables you to live a holy, righteous life. It enables Christians to live a holy, righteous life. Romans 6, 4, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. It's a sad thing that we even have professing Christians today kind of poo-pooing living a holy or righteous life. Yeah, you're a holy Joe. You're a holy roller. Would someone dare say that to an infinitely holy God? The same God who said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The same God who said, as the one who called you is holy, be holy in all your behavior, your speech, your conduct, everything about you. Christian, you don't have the ability in yourself to live out this kind of a holy life. But guess who lives in you, Galatians 2.20? A living Christ. And he helps you. He gives you the strength to live a holy life. Live a holy life. Number three, because Christ rose from the dead, you have assurance of resurrection. Assurance of resurrection. Romans 8. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give you life. I love 2 Corinthians 4.14 that I list there knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus. And Philippians 3.21, he who will transform a lowly body that may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he's able to subdue all things to himself. The next time, should Jesus tarry, the next time that Oral Bible Church has a funeral for one of our members, 
Is it a sad time? It is. Why? Because we love that one and we miss him or her. That's why it's sad. We are not sad for them, are we? Because where are they? Where will they be? They will be with Christ. But the next time we have a funeral, while we weep, we do not weep as those who have no hope because we know what's going to happen to this one. This isn't the end. But the world says that's the end. Once you die, that's it. No. For Christians, this is just sleep. Jesus will raise this one up again and give them a glorified body. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, an incorruptible body. No scars, no problems, no effects of sin. How will that happen? Not because of our ability. It will happen because of what Jesus has promised you, Christian, and he will do it. Number four, because Jesus rose from the dead, Christian, you have the ability to live a productive and meaningful life. A productive and meaningful life when you live for Christ. That is the qualification there. When you live for Christ. We read 1 Corinthians 15, 58 this morning. Be steadfast, immovable. And then what does it say? Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Vain is the opposite of these two words here. Productive and meaningful. Paul spoke to all kinds of people. He spoke to the higher-ups of society, and he spoke to the dregs of society. He spoke to masters and slaves, men and women, boys and girls, Jews and Gentiles, barbarians and Scythians, Romans and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles. He spoke to everyone. And he says this, and God says this to everyone, every believer here today. In your daily life, Christian, whether it's washing the dishes, doing the laundry, doing your chores, doing your work, when you do it as to the Lord, you are living a meaningful and productive life. The point here, Christian, you must live your life for Christ in everything that you do. In everything you do. And this is in contrast to unbelievers who live for themselves. And they will go the way of the world, 1 John 2, 17. It is passing away. These unbelievers... They live ultimately then a useless and a worthless life. But everything that a Christian does for Christ is productive and meaningful. Last, because Christ rose from the dead, number five, you will live, you can live a correctly focused life. A correctly focused life. Colossians 3.1. Since you've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, not the things that are in this life. Almost seems to be contrary to what I just said there. No, in your work, in your family life, you're living, you're doing this for Christ, for what's eternal. You're not doing it for myself. You're not doing it for personal glory. 
you will clearly see you have a concentration in what you're living for. It is focused. Some points of application to take away from this painting of Christ, the importance of Christ's resurrection. Whoever trusts in the resurrected Christ, what's the promise? You will be saved. Doesn't matter how great your sin has been. I don't care. God says it doesn't matter. Whoever trusts, repents of their sin, and trusts in Christ has eternal life. This is a promise now. Paul was a murderer. Paul blasphemed God. And what did God graciously do? God saved him. God saved him. No matter their sins. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised you from the dead, this is the promise to you, friend. If you're without Christ, God will save you. But if you insist on not believing in Christ, if you insist on not following Christ, Jesus has a word for you as well. He says you're wasting your life. He says you're a fool because you're doing all this stuff in this life and then you're going to die and then what's going to happen to all this stuff? It's going to go on to someone else and where will you spend eternity? Forever separated from the Lord. Another point of application from this is a key difference between the Old Testament sacrifices and Jesus' sacrifice. Think about this one. A key difference between Old Testament sacrifices and Jesus' sacrifice. Those Old Testament sacrifices, they died. And they're still dead, aren't they? But Jesus' sacrifice, did he die? Yes, but what's the difference? He is alive. And that shows the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice. Christian, Another point of application, when you sorrow, and you will sorrow, when you are frightened, when you're unsure what to do, when you're attacked by godless people, when you're tempted to sin, when you're lonely, when you're timid, when you know that you shouldn't be, remember this. Jesus is alive and he is with you. And you are not alone. And when you sorrow at night and it seems like you're all alone, you are not alone. When you don't know what to do and you need wisdom, you don't have to figure it out yourself. You are not alone. When you're timid and fearful, you are not alone. Your Savior is with you. Jesus is with you. Christian brothers and sisters, your Savior lives. You live because of Him. You must live for Him. Live for Him. And He, His resurrection, this must be. 
This is essential. This is a priority for the gospel message. We do not proclaim an idea. We do not point people to a concept. We tell them that there's a living Savior who's also their judge and that's coming again and that will raise the saints. Praise the Lord for this amazing painting that we have of Jesus, our resurrected Savior. Let's pray.